1: The Pard Fix Network. Hello, and welcome to episode 207 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson, director, producer, and a screenwriter, and I'm joined as my intro co host today, the fantastic producer Robbie McKay.
2: Hello, buddy. Hey, Giles, how's it going? Very well, mate. Very well. It's been a while since I've been on the intro. It's exciting. <laughs> it's so exciting. Oh,
1: the audience are going crazy right now at home, screaming and <laughs> squeals and the wet seats. It's yeah. crazy. It's, it's like Beatlemania. <laughs> That's a great doc, by the way, which is on Sky Now. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Ron How directed it. Anyway, on this week's episode, we have the fantastic team behind the amazing film *To Olivia, which is a Sky original, which is out now. You've probably seen it advertised. It's everywhere. It stars the fantastic Keely Hawes and Hugh Bonneville. It is so good. I really love this movie. It's a feel-good movie that you need to see right now. Get it in your eyeballs to Olivia. It's all about Roald Dahl and his relationship with his wife and they've just lost their daughter. It's uh, a beautiful, beautiful film. Superbly well made and luckily for us we have on for you wonderful people the producer Donald McCusker and the director John Hay now donal has produced uh, Falling for Figaro, Another Mother's Son, Division 19, Kajaki and The Hurt Locker. He's also live produced and exec produced so many other movies. John Hay, he's the director and screenwriter of To Olivia, but he's also uh, directed. There's only one Jimmy Grimble, the fantastic uh, soccer movie, which I love. Lost Christmas and some amazing TV work, including Stig of the Dump, which was BAFTA and Emmy nominated. How amazing. And they sit down to talk about to Olivier and their careers and making movies. Robbie, what did you
2: learn from listening? We learned about how, why you might want to shoot on a widescreen format, what the differences is between that kind of format uh, that's usually used for film and formats for TV, because obviously they've worked in both. We also learn about working with child actors, how to, you know, how you have to treat that in a completely different way uh, than you would just talking to your regular old normal aged actors.
1: We also talk about scheduling uh, why Roald Dahl, uh, why they wanted to make this particular film to Olivia,
2: and how they got the finance to make the movie. They also talk about losing cast, how to deal with that when, you know, someone drops out in the middle of pre-production. They also talk about losing cast, what to do with that when you're gearing up to production, uh, and working with... Legendary producer Gary Kurtz, obviously produced Star Wars. Mm. Al Pacino, the actor, you know, the man himself. And obviously Oscar winning director Catherine Bigelow.
1: It's amazing when they talk about that. I, I, honestly, it's th- spread throughout the, the episode and it's so lovely, especially when he talks about the bubble of belief that Gary, Gary Kurtz uses. Wait for that moment. It's great. We also talk about um, what makes a good line producer slash production manager slash exec producer we talk all about that and we talk about how to close finance the all-important bit that you all need to know because you might find that investor you might find that someone who wants to put a bit of money in but how do you close it Uh, we do touch on that so amazing that's all to come on this week's episode of the filmmakers podcast um and i can't wait for you lot to hear it because it's so cool i love i love doing this i love talking to filmmakers about how they make their films, from people who made it for 10 grand or nothing, to people who have made it for millions, I love it. So Robbie, you have been very busy, hence why you're not uh, fully producing and editing this um, podcast right now, because you're about thinking about maybe going to Japan. But first of all, <laughs> tell people what it is you're doing, because Robbie needs your help.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, Charles. Uh, basically, I'm developing a feature documentary with a with a journalist writer who uh, specializes in travel and stories from around the world. And we're looking at developing this film around Tohoku, which is the region on the east coast of Japan that was affected by the 2011 tsunami and earthquake. And it's completely transformed over the last 10 years. It's this sort of wilderness, this beautiful kind of wilderness that's populated by these few people that have chosen to stay and develop their lives there and they've got all these stories of hope and accepting strangers in and it's just this wonderful area that's undiscovered practically by by kind of western tourists so we're going out there it's going to be just the two of us and we're hoping to capture some of those stories on film and yeah we've got a kickstarter now uh and it's yeah it's called tohoku recovery in action and um I'd really love for the listeners of the podcast to check it out. And if they can, share it with their friends. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. Listen, the amount of um, love that Robbie has given you lot by editing this podcast, producing, being part of this team, the least you can do is retweet it. Um, Your Twitter is at Robbie McCain, isn't it?
2: That's right. And I've got it as my pinned tweet if you want to check it out.
1: Please do that and do check out the Kickstarter. This is a brilliant cause. This is going to be fantastic. If Robbie's behind it, this is going to be so cool. So do get involved. Tim and James Clark will be making this and it's going to be great.
2: It's quite a modest Kickstarter goal because we know it's obviously a difficult time for a lot of people. And um, we're basically, it, I have a lot of sort of kit and stuff that we'll be, we'll be using, but it's essentially uh, a very, very low budget project, but we want to try and make the best of it. So if you can... Uh, help us get to our total the end of February
1: do it people Uh, it it is a really low goal it's like yeah very very low so please do jump on that and do support uh, our lovely Robbie oh and also this Thursday the 25th of February we are going to be on Clubhouse that's right it's the new app social media app it's only for iphone users at the moment and it's invite only Uh, but if you want to come and join us then let us know and we'll see if we can get some invites for you clubhouse this great new app uh, where you can chat whatever you like really and people set up clubs and in there you can ask questions so we decided to do one for the filmmakers podcast and we thought we'd do on filmmaking after covid kind of during as well so we're going to get a load of our hosts and some special guests to chat about filmmaking and you can ask questions so if you want to ask your questions uh, c- uh join us this thursday uh on clubhouse app link will be in the show notes hopefully i'll see you there but i think we might do this regularly every thursday so stay tuned but for now come join us this thursday that's enough of us waffling um let's jump into today's episode with the fantastic donald mccusker and the delightful john hay talking about two olivier which is out now go watch go support
2: thanks robbie for doing the intro thank you Giles it's lovely to be here oh next Tuesday's guest
1: is Matthew Modine by the way oh you're just you just dropping
2: that in just like yeah Matthew Modine star of Full Metal Jacket Stranger Things like legendary actor of the 80s and 90s and 2000s so
1: there we have it he's on next week we've already recorded it it's brilliant uh, he's a really lovely guy and he's here to talk about his latest film A Wrong Turn but we do touch strange things very briefly but he's there he's a super guy uh so enjoy that that's next week for now go out there and make your films here's our episode uh, with donald and john and myself enjoy hello hey donald how are you buddy not too bad how are you very good thank you very good hi
0: john
1: hey john so how are you boys where are you in the world donald whereabouts
3: are you right now i am in glorious South London, shivering slightly, but I am sitting on a, a little electric heater.
1: Yeah, I've got one just next to me now. It's just, but the problem is sometimes with these electric heaters, they sometimes go a little too hot, a little bit too, I've never been a big fan of fake heat, to be honest. But uh, yeah, it's not, it's not always the best. I'm down in Brighton and uh, you know, I haven't left for the best part of
4: a year, I think.
3: In the last 12 months, we've seen each other once that so we waved at each other across a, a dubbing theatre. And that's it that's that was a one time
1: it's actually been perfect, Giles. Yeah, I can imagine, John. Yeah, Donald's nodding. Yeah, It's been a different experience, hasn't it? Because I've delivered a film in COVID as well, and you, you just this whole sort of having to do things remotely. It's, there's some nice bits about it, but there's also some, you know, the bits where you don't get to interact. You don't get to sit in a dubbing mix with someone. You don't get to, you know, really go through the fine details, and you have to do it via Zoom. It's it's kind of kills the magic a little bit, right?
4: Well, it does and it doesn't. I think it's um, mm-hmm. it's been a really interesting... Yeah, because it, we've just found new ways of working and um, new, you know, we've worked with, you know, people who've done the visual effects and things like that. And we had to do all the visual effects. I've done all the sound pretty much without meeting anyone at all. All the ADR with Hugh in his own um, studio. Yeah. I've done the stuff with ADR with Keely and all the other actors just using Zoom and having them in the studio and getting them to record. Yeah,
3: and re- music was recorded separately. Music was recorded um, by yeah.
4: an in two parts so we had like half the orchestra one day and half the next to allow us to sort of like you know sort of meet all the health and safety requirements so Mm -hmm. it's just been it's been extraordinary experience and it has I mean it's taught us that you can make a film like this it's really artisanal it's a sort of like I hate to say it's a way of almost going back to student filmmaking you feel you know much more involved with everyone you know I mean just doing the title sequence for example which took 12 weeks talking to Matt, the animator, every day on Zoom and looking at bits of it and having stuff sent to you. Mm -hmm. But what I miss is being able to go into a theatre and watch it on a big screen and see how it really works, you know. And you do need to take it downstairs, put it on a 4K and say and get as close as possible and say this is what people are going to look, you know, be looking at in the theatre. Having said that, of course, we're not even, you know, we thought we were going to be going into the theatres, but... They're, of course, closed, which is really sad. So, um, yes. you know, we've only gone out on Sky as opposed to a, a dual release. Um, but mm. you know, maybe more people will see it like that. And, you know, the world is changing. We, everything is, you know, the smaller films just don't, aren't going to have an opportunity to sort of be released in the same way. We're all discussing it and seeing how we can make it work.
1: Yes, I know. Isn't that it is amazing that the people are at home right now and they are looking for things to watch. And I think to Olivia will be something that people will be dying to watch it's a kind of that kind of you know wonderful heartwarming movie that people want to watch right now as well so there is some benefits to that but you're right i'd i'd love to watch this movie in a on a big screen you know i think it does have that feeling as much but it's that up and down isn't it you know more people might put eyeballs on it because what's happening right now
4: they're not doing for example a post that you'd normally have a poster campaign but yes Nobody's going out, so you you don't have your posters, you're using social media. It's teaching everyone so much about how to release a film and how to market a film and how to use publicity, you know, in totally different ways. You're spending your money on social media outlets, you're spending money on getting things to the top of Google, you're spending money on all that sort of stuff, you're spending money on YouTube, you're just not spending it in the same way. And I don't think we'll ever go back, not in, you you know, we won't go back, not in the same way.
1: Do you think there's a lot of benefits then from doing it this way? You know, in terms of, like, say, we're not going to go back because we've learned so much. We can do it this way. You know, what is a
4: film? You know, mm. how do you define a film? You know, when I when I was young, I sort of like, I started in TV. I so mm-hmm. want to make a feature film. You know, I sort of like everything was all about getting my first film. You know, in the uh, about '94 on in the cinemas and I was just mm. so pleased to be able to go to a cinema recudos kudos of that this sort of like has gone in a way you know everyone's big name directors are making stuff for tv
3: tv isn't what tv used to be tv is now streaming it's now much more money is put into it um and it is it is glossier and is bigger and I think that you know I think that to talk, to say movies are are less now than TV is actually not true. What what is true is that TV or or streaming is now more than. It, it once was. A lot more money. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? How,
1: like say, you, you go even back 10 years, 15 years, making a TV programme, as much as it would cost a lot of money, you can make maybe a couple of features for that. Nowadays, the money that gets put into making an episode of The Witcher or whatever is ridiculous amounts of money that we go, well, we could probably make a good few feature films on that. You know, um, and that, like you say, it is it is a mix. It's just the way the world's evolved. People want to see big TV big series they're happy to watch hours and hours and hours of game of thrones you know and also the
4: way you like for example when i started out and you were making stuff for itv they'd be going mm. close up close up closer up. yes and now of course everyone's got big screens you know those those rules have disappeared in fact you know we chose very deliberately to even though the film was made essentially in two or three locations and like was very sort of housebound as it were Mm. we chose to make it on widescreen we you know we we fought for that to to give it a cinematic feel and the interesting thing is when you i mean i've worked with kids a lot their body language is what it's all about it's not really about faces with kids their their emotion is expressed in the way they come into a room you know the fact the way they look you know in in sort of full length so Generally, what you what I always did was sort of use Academy ratio, which allows you to see far more of their bodies. Now Mm -hmm. here, you've got widescreen. So you're just seeing, you know, big, tall Hugh and tiny little Darcy. You have to sort of like, you know, it it was for me, it was a learning experience of throwing away the rules of of using body language and sort of like, you know, and choosing a format that sort of like, um gave it a a, a, um, a cinematic look as well mm.
1: which again i think is absolutely vital and so important when you're setting out to make a film but interesting lots of people are watching films and it's sad to say on their mobile phones now when we now as as donald absolutely makes correct uh, and john you're saying we shoot it bigger we shoot it like we're shooting it for you know we're going what we're not having to do big close-ups on tv anymore but when people are watching it on their phones they miss things and should we you know go oh well we should probably cater for that as well but then we're in this middle ground of going well we need a big old close-up of something that they can't read because they're on the phones whereas on a cinema it'd be far too big. interesting
4: i mean i'd sort of like slightly i'd slightly argue against that one because mm-hmm. i'll tell you what i've got my phone here yeah now i'm sitting in a multiplex and i'm looking at a big screen i'm sitting what eight rows back or something right. you know yeah the screen in relative scale to me is no bigger than if I hold this phone here, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, what I'm, what I'm actually seeing and looking at in terms of, you know, this phone and the size of it and my, I'm being close to it. And my editor, um, you know, Colin, who'd done, you know, big films like um, Rogue One and stuff like that. And he always said, look, I've got a huge, great 6k um, uh, TV, uh, a monitor and we're going to sit it in the edit suite. Yeah. You sit, you know five yards from that and it's going to be no different than going to Leicester Square and it's true in relative value and mm. you no, know, and I talk to the you know I talk to dubbing mixers and things like that and they go they're listening to stuff on my laptop and they're going that's the that's the sound you're getting off your laptop that's amazing you know yeah yeah, yeah. last few years the sort of like speaker systems and things like that are far less um, forgiving so you do you know and with you know, sort of the use of Dolby and TV and things like that, you're getting a, you know, it's very different.
0: You know, I'm, I'm arguing
4: against film and I shouldn't be because there is something about the collective viewing experience and yes. sitting in a room with strangers that you don't get, you know, mm-hmm. at home with TV, it becomes a much more sort of like individualistic, honest sort of like experience.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of going to the cinemas, going to the movies, the pictures, the flicks, whatever, you know, we want to call this thing. I... I I miss it terribly um, but I also know things have moved on and I have got a big TV here. I know people have got massive TVs or they've got projections, you know, projectors and life is changing. We do have to adapt as always, you know. Um, Donna, when you were first starting out in this business, you know, one of the first sort of credited movies or TV series that you made was The Valley and can you remember then and the difference from that to now in terms of <laughs> jumping back into, you know, films like that and How you feel? Things have changed for you as a as a producer, and what you you know how you could make a film back then, and how different it is to now.
3: Uh, Well, the 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 Valley, which is an excellent movie, if anybody has a time to see it, but it's a documentary. It was a seminal documentary directed by Dan Reed. Uh, It was funny. I got the gig on that because. I'd been to film school and I understood how film worked as in celluloid okay. and uh, all the documentary uh, people were shooting on digital at that stage. So I got the gig because they went, well, you know how 60 mil works. I would go, yeah, okay. Uh, ironically, I, I had come from Northern Ireland and they said, yeah, you'll be fine in a war zone you know, I said, fine. And I promptly stayed in Hammersmith throughout the shoot and let the other guys go, <laughs> to, go to the war zone. The Valley was made by a director who knew how to tell stories. And then later on, uh, I, I, my kind of career was a bit of an odd one. And I went through um, this phase of doing um, docudramas. So it was documentarians making uh, drama. The point about documentarians is they know how to make good stories, and I think that the difference at the time, and we talked about the difference between TV and and, and and what's happened to TV, is that people doing TV drama, like Coronation Street or EastEnders or whatever, could never make the jump to doing feature films because that type of storytelling wasn't compatible with doing feature films, whereas um, the documentarians were used to making... Uh, the sixty-minute or a ninety-minute story, and they were used to crafting out how to, to, to. They don't use scripts in the same sense as a, as a dramatic script, but there was actually a smaller leap, or, or from that to doing long form. Whereas I think that in terms of feature films, and I know John, you, you're, you went through television and you were doing uh, drama, but I do think that there's, there's a. It's easier to go from a 90 minute documentary into a 90 minute feature film than it is to go from a serialized television show into a 90 minute drama. Um, and I think that there's, you know, even though a documentary is made very differently and it's made on a much lower budget, but there's, there's a, there, there is synergy there.
4: I think there is. And I think also with the documentary, you, you spend so much time in the edit, whereas in a TV show, you're like shuffling bits together. You got very few takes, you know, mm-hmm. You've really, really, really tight schedule. Whereas like a documentary, because, you know, sometimes you have huge long um, post-production schedules, which really allow you to recraft and recraft a story. And I think that's what you end up so often doing, you know, with a feature film, looking at it, seeing what other people think, recrafting, changing this, adding music doing this there's so much more freedom and flexibility whereas with long-running shows everything's set up for you by mm-hmm. you know unless you're you know the first um you know unless you're it a, making it yeah so yeah I've learned I, I learned quite a lot from uh, yes from a mix of, I love documentary I mean I really do i mean, both Donald and I just you know adore it as a format you know and I think that's what you know we 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 talk about a lot you know and so <laughs> yeah um because uh, yeah there's just there's just something about it. There's just the surprises in documentary.
1: I totally agree. Yeah, I've made a couple of docs now. I'm making one right now. And I think it really t- teaches you about storytelling because you can sit people down and have an interview with them. But where does that go in terms of your story and how do you craft that into a lovely 90-minute doc? I know, John, you worked with Al Pacino on his... It was a documentary, I'm, I'm right, the, the short about um, when he was looking for Richard. Yeah, I, he actually made a film called The Local Stigmatic, which That's I made right. Documentary about
4: yes. for Paul. and Al watched it and sort of like said, oh my god, you're the only person who's ever been able to explain um, the local stigmatic. Now the local stigmatic is based on Hethcott Williams' play. Mm-hmm. And Al loved it because it's about stardom. It's about these guys who follow a star and kill him. There, is, you know, there are there are stars and there are stars, and Al Pacino is a star. You know, yes. the impact I can remember of like you know just being in a room and just seeing people approach. And go oh my god that's al pacino i've never seen with you know but anyone at all really apart from al you know mm. he just has so much anyway so he he's always been fascinated by stardom and uh, i made uh yeah i made this sort of short for channel four and then you know he asked me to come along and do the uk side of looking for richard now al directed that but i worked with him and sort of put the uk side together with a guy called Dale overton and it was a fabulous experience there was harold becker there and uh, wow. so many people including kevin spacey mm-hmm. um no more will be said and uh, <laughs> yeah sort of like uh, yeah and we we worked together it was an incredible collective experience and al was an absolute delight to work with and it's really about Al. you know al's very street and like you know it was him finding shakespeare i mean uh, and the experiences i got you know one day he said you got to ring. Uh, you got to ring John
1: Gilgud. I'm too nervous to ring John Gilbert. <laughs> He's too nervous. That's amazing, Al Pacino, hey, I'm too nervous. You do it. You do it. Like, what? <laughs> so I ring. So I ring John Gilgud's
4: house, and it's like it's so like about ten minutes before anyone picks up the phone, and then finally this voice goes, "Hello." <laughs> as if somebody. It was like as if somebody nobody had ever picked up the phone. You know. I love was, that. And I said, "Oh, hi! I'm John Hay, and I'm working with Al Pacino. And you know, we'd love to we'd love to interview for for this film." And um, John said, "Al Pacino, I love Al Pacino." <laughs> and <laughs> then, uh, so then we we went along to uh, we met him in Oxford in this hotel. Again, Al got lost for uh, various reasons with the crew, <laughs> oh. and I was the I would realize that John w- was sitting upstairs, so oh. I had to run up upstairs and sit down with John Gilbert which was just wow. and uh, so I was sitting there like waiting with him for 20 minutes trying to fill the time while you know trying to get Al on the phone and the rest of the crew up there and I, and John was sitting there with these beautiful socks immaculately turned out and he spent the whole I thought of all the things I wanted to ask John Gilbert and you know he'd been <laughs> I'd read everything and all that yeah. and all we talked about he was like he just loved smoking and all we talked oh. about was like the fact that um, he couldn't smoke on the tube anymore and how disgusting it wasn't that he wasn't allowed to... So, yes. I never got a chance to ask him anything <laughs> to say how beautiful his, his,
1: socks. his socks were and it is a shame you can't smoke anymore shit why am I saying this yeah type thing but it's John Gielgud I don't know what to say oh that's amazing what a great story Wait, did you did you learn anything from Al Pacino during that time in terms of that went into your directing was there anything you saw there what I learned from Al was spontaneity I mean god mm. he was unstoppable but like, you know, there wasn't it really,
4: you know, he didn't really direct in the same way. We had Harold Becker there who would just done Sea of Love and won an Oscar. And me, you know, and I mean, Al had no idea about the line or how to do an interview, you know, without crossing the line and stuff like that. He just did crazy stuff. Oh, John swaps over with me now. And we're going, no, Al, you can't do that. It was really the foundations, um, uh, sort of like he was building a theatre in Around South Bank, and he That's went right, down yeah. there and sort of like did mm-hmm. this great thing, just standing on the stage and uh, going, this son of York. And he, I don't know, it was just something, when he did it, it was extraordinary. I mean, he wanted, he, he didn't want to, he wanted John Gielgud to say that he could do Shakespeare in an American accent. Shakespeare would have gone fuck it, yeah, do it.
1: Shakespeare would have been over the fucking moon if opportunity, if you knew opportunity four hundred late, years
4: later was doing
1: Shakespeare.
4: <laughs> you know, and you look at colorblind casting and things like that now, mm. and it's sort of like that's years ahead of its time. You just do what you like with it. You know, yes. that's what John Gilbert said. It doesn't matter. You don't have to do it in a Ponzi sort of like you know RP accent. You know, mm-hmm. you just do what you like with it and interpret it. You know, through the lens of today. And I think that's what our that's the that's the power of looking for Richard. It's it's through the lens of today. And all the critics were going, oh, you know, really? He's doing it in an American accent? I was like, you
1: know. Yeah, not. totally. It's, it's adaptation. You're allowed to, totally. And
4: the fact that he
1: doesn't understand all the nuances of the text. When
4: I was like, I knew Henry V when I was nine years old. I was just like a complete geek about Shakespeare. But he right. didn't understand the nuances of the text, but that didn't, in a way, didn't matter. Mm. That meant that the, the audience were taken on a journey with our. And when I saw it, I just thought, oh, it's
1: tremendous. But it was way too long. It's about four hours. Long. Yes, sure. <laughs> and Donald, yourself, you've, you've worked with sort of Hollywood royalty as well with Catherine Bigelow and The Hurt Locker and obviously uh, Kajaki as well with the brilliant um, Gareth there, Ellis Unwin. And, you know, but talk about with with The Hurt Locker for us, just really, you know, talking about great directors there with Albertino, great performers, and then Catherine Bigelow for you. Can, can you remember your time on that? Just give us a, a lovely little anecdote or something about that. would be lovely. The funny thing about that is, you-
3: you say it now in hindsight oh yeah. fabulous beautiful oh, yeah, great yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I know. but in reality um i was in jordan uh where we shot it doing a movie with uh, nick Broomfield ba- Battle for heditha yeah I, which is a great movie a war movie and um and i met uh catherine and mark bowl the like they just flowing in, and I was about to fly out, and I was rapping Haditha and um, they arrived. And then the next day, Mark calls me and says, uh, "Yeah, we've we've had to part ways with their previous line producer, and would I like the job? Because I've gone on with them with a party the night before, and <laughs> they luck. just watched another movie. <laughs> and Catherine was swearing that she didn't want to work with any Hollywood types, right. um, Because she wanted to make something much more documentary-like. Back to documentary." and Barry Aykroyd was shooting it and Barry had shot a lot with Nick uh, Broomfield and mm-hmm. um and that and Catherine and I got all well and but but we hired a, a crew and the arab speakers of which they came from Jordan or Tunisian whatever thought this was big American money and lots of money. And the Brits who were there thought this was an interesting movie with an interesting director and it was going to do well and it was a kind of a mid-budget film. And the Americans that came in thought they were working with this washed-up director who had had a disaster with K-19 Widowmaker and they didn't have enough money and why were they in this back-and-beyond country with, you know...
1: there's the differences.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we made this movie and everything was shot, if anybody has seen Hurt Locker, on with cameras, with long lenses, shooting miles away from where we were. So we were all standing. We couldn't see what was being shot. Catherine and Mark were seeing it on the, on the monitors. Um, I was shot in film, so we couldn't even watch rushes because the rushes took a week to come back. It had a phenomenally high shooting ratio, 95 to 1 shooting ratio, just in Jordan, uh, which if you're shooting film is a big thing. If you're shooting digital, it's not so big. And um, so we didn't really know what we were making
1: right so for you at the time it was a bit of a it was a job really
3: you should explain about the actual the suit and how that ended up oh yeah like we were we were busy kind of getting quite close and you kind of you know various people going bomb suits yeah we're we gonna you know is that wardrobe is that props oh how one we of those yep. we're we gonna do the robot <laughs> and we got them both product placement so the both the bomb suit and the robot were product placement because Companies make these and need to sell them too, and and but you kind of think the bomb suits aren't exactly easily come by, and nor are the robots, and 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 both work really well, and and it's kind of things like that that you know happenstance that makes the movie, and the and the slow motion shot of the dust on the bonnet. Well that's hugely valuable but that literally was somebody hitting a bonnet with a sledgehammer and
1: the magic of the movies right there isn't it but
3: isn't it funny how you say that and
1: when we go into projects and stuff we, obviously we have high hopes for stuff and we but when we're in it and we're in the trenches and we see the shit and we see the problems and we see the issues we go oh my gosh how's this ever going to come
3: into a film Who Olivia is funny because the and uh, you know you read it and you kind of go great two people pretty much in the same location. What could possibly go wrong? And you remember
4: there's loads of kids under seven.
3: Loads of them. Luckily. The shooting schedule progressively got shorter and progressively got closer to Christmas. And we're trying to drift it up to Christmas, which if you're ever scheduling actually as a tip, if you schedule right up to Christmas, it gives you a stop whereby you can't you know, you can't. Your project can't slide anymore. So um, you you env- eventually end up in a situation whereby you you have to shoot because Christmas is blocking you, sliding back any further. And artist availability, and you know. And, and the other problem with Christmas is that if you if you are thinking you've got to remember Christmas lights because when you're planning this in the summer, yeah. nobody ever remembers. Oh yeah, if we shoot outside, every all the Christmas decorations are gonna be like, so when we were in Shear, of course, we, we you know, scouted and tech recited and all that. And we had lots of great plans. No Christmas lights up then. Two nights at four, yep. you go, oh we oh. oh, put up the Christmas decorations. The whole town have. Oh, my God. Yeah, this little village. Oh, my gosh. So the guy who had spent, you know, all day putting them up got a knock on his door and said... Um, <laughs> You wouldn't mind getting your crayon
1: out and taking a little lights not please. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we had similar on the strange on our bed. I just shot we we shot in November going into December and people were put and we just had to knock around and say, Look, do you mind? Would it be all right, please? We hadn't you know, it was one of those we not even didn't even know we were filming there. But some people are very nice about it and they say, Okay, if we help you or we'll we'll get your daughter in the film or whatever, and anything like that you can get through. And, and that's fascinating. Because obviously you, John, you'd work with kids a lot, and there's lots of kids in To Olivia. Your first, you know, feature film was there's only one Jimmy Grimble, which obviously is very famous for me as a big football fan it's one of those really wonderful movies so you're you're used to working with kids you've done it a lot throughout your career the stick of the dump brilliant brilliant well done BAFTA winning as well and Emmy winning what when, when you're doing to Olivia then you're casting this now you you obviously you're used to it but but and I say but <laughs> you still got to cast great kids who are younger than normal as well you know that age is it's a tough age to get people to react and do the right line. You've got a you've got one year old in there as well, you know.
4: In a funny sort of way, I really like kids at that age. Mm. Because they're pretty much untouched. They haven't been messed around by stage schools and, you know, mm. lost, and, 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 and lost the realism, the verite that you do. And I think what I love directing kids around that age, like Thomas Sankster I started off and things like that, yeah, is that yeah. You're just just asking them to use their own experiences. And trying to let them trying to give them comparable experiences that you translate. And you go and go, oh, do you remember the da- the day your dad died? You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. obviously you can't or oh, do you remember the day your dog died? It's not like that. But you're trying to find, you know, sort of ways of 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 getting into their head without sort of upsetting them too much. But or, or you know, sort of like, and I love the challenge of that. That's the great thing, you know, you get a great actor like Hugh, and the honest truth is there isn't that, you know. I mean, Hugh's Hugh. He's read every he's and and Keeley they have read the whole script back to front inside out. They know everything. They know their part and they know everything. They've researched it. They know it back to front and they've worked with a you know um you know a voice coach for ages. So when they turn up, there's pretty not much that you can tell them. You might be able to like say oh you know give it a bit more of this, give it a little less of that. But a kid, you know, that is really a director's dream in a way because everything you see on screen is pretty much what we've managed to get out of them. And I say not just me. I mean it's the relationship. A producer yeah. has with the kids and with the parents. It's the relationship that Hugh has with them and Keely has with them. The way that though I always use actors because actors can teach kids stuff that I can't. I'm not an I'm not an actor. I don't know the techniques. Keely could explain to Darcy how to act as if you're unconscious. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just little tricks. And she just what I just, you know, went in and I thought, oh no, she's not, you know, I can ask, I know what I'm asking for. But Keeley can say, look, if you're unconscious, you do this and like let your body relax and all those little tricks. So if you use actors and you all become like a family, really, and look after each other, mm. you can get the most fabulous experiences. And I've had that from Jeffrey Palmer and Stig of the Dump and mm. Barney and everything. If you, as long as you haven't got arrogant kids, you can get, you know, those great performances. And to me, a great performance is what I call live thought. I think that if you get a kid who's just saying the lines. It doesn't wash with an audience. What you have to do is see them thinking those emotions through and trying to get them to replicate that is -hmm. what's really, really hard, particularly after multiple takes. So I try not to do too many takes on it. And very Mm -hmm. often I'll use earlier takes. And the other thing is I use ADR quite a lot, And the reason I do that is because if I can get the emotion on their faces, even if I can't get, you know, the right delivery, I know that in ADR everyone says our kids in ADR they just don't know how to do it but actually they do kids play computer games all the time Mm -hmm. they know they can sit in front of a screen they can replicate a performance they can get their lips to sync in an incredible way that adults get completely tied up around and don't and and also the thing about a kid is then if they're in a theater and it's only their voice they're not thinking about and it's a darkened theater they're not thinking about the way they look and that's really, really important. They're not thinking, they don't have that sort of like outer perspective on their performance. And once they, you know, then you could get, you marry those two. So you'll find, you know, a lot of what Darcy did and Bodhi did in the film is actually ADR, And I think we get a better performance. Funny not enough, a lot of Izzy, I did try to ADR, but actually there was an authenticity to it. Mm. And the great right thing is you can, you know, you've got to treat every kid, you've got to treat them differently, just the same as every actor. Everyone works in a different way. And that's what a good director does, is they respect the way each of those people work and allow them to find their own way of doing it. Some people research forever, some people are methody, some people are this and that. But you know, I don't I never tell anyone how to do anything in terms of like what well, what I just tell them what I want to see, and I tell them when I've seen it. And I think no. that's what a director is. They are the audience. They're the substitute for the audience. The first audience, yes. Seen, yeah. When they've seen something authentic, then they can say they've seen, you know, they've had that they've got what they want. And that's exactly what an audience is going to do
1: further down the line beautiful way of putting it very good love that so for those who don't know yet um i'm sure you do because i'll have mentioned it in the intro but to olivia olivia is a story of the tumultuous marriage between uh actress patricia Neal, played by the fabulous uh keely hawes and uh um the writer roald dahl uh, played by hugh bonneville obviously john mentioned both their names there it's it's a fantastic uh, heartfelt movie with so much emotion and brilliant performances across the board. Sam Hewins in there, uh, Conneth Hill, who's been in loads of my mates movies, uh, Jeffrey Palmer, who you mentioned there, Michael Gibson, who's was in the West End for years. So I knew from those, those places as well. Uh, and just a, a whole array of brilliant other actors and wonderful young kids.
3: May I have one? My name is Rul Dahl. Some of you may know my books. Well
4: done for Johnny and the Giant and um, Pineapple. Oh, thank you.
3: And this is my wife, Patricia Neal. Star of stage and screen. you
0: one big
2: kid. And the day you start is the day I file for divorce. Come on, Daddy.
3: We had two daughters, Olivia and Tessa. Livy?
0: <laughs>
3: but a story can have many pages.
0: Livy!
3: Where were we?
2: Chapter five. Very good idea. Many people have called Charlie and Chocolate Factory one of the
1: finest children's books. Do you like it? I love it. I rather think she would have liked it as well. To Olivia. (laughs) Yeah so look this this movie is just uh, it's really lovely I I can't wait for people to watch this because it's great it really really is one of these things that you just sit down together as a family or sit down together as a couple or just on your own watch these kind of movies because you need these sometimes in your life. So let's talk about how it came about uh how did you two start working together donald and john how did you say this is the project because it probably wasn't the easiest sell you know in terms of a story like this It's has oh, got it's roldar's story okay that's cool but what happens well it's the death of his daughter and did it. so uh, it'd be really interesting for you guys to talk about how it came about how you managed to get your cast your money everything together donald we'll start with you
4: i worked with um uh, dave logan who's uh i've worked with on lost christmas before with eddie yes yeah, And Dave and I came up with the idea of doing something about Roald Dahl and we both loved Roald Dahl, a charming chocolate factory had meant a lot to me as a mm. child and sort of like, I just thought there was a fabulous film there that hadn't I'd never seen and I'd never seen anyone do it. So we we wrote a treatment, sent it to the Dahl estate and they said, no, we don't want to do anything uh, right. with, you know, sort of with Roald Dahl. So I took it to ITV. And not with Hugh Bonneville or with anyone, just as an idea. And they commissioned it as a Christmas film.
1: Oh, wow.
4: Uh, The controller at ITV, Steve, then subsequently left and obviously it moved over to somebody else. And they obviously probably quite rightly chose not to carry on with it because that's what so often happens is they want to make their own mark and get rid of everything else that everyone else has prepared, which is fair enough. So then I went to Hugh and I said, what about if we do it as a movie? And bless him, Hugh stuck with it over three years through some very very difficult times. I mean, essentially, it started off as a story about Roald Dahl, and it was very much about writing of the Charlie and Chocolate Factory, which is what we thought everyone wanted. Mm. But Dave and I became fascinated with Patricia Neal, and actually, realising that we could tell her story and sort of like it's sort of like it's told to by her by default, if you know what you mean. Yep. You sort of think it's being made. Uh, it, it's Roald Dahl's story and it gradually becomes hers because of you know the, the, the fact that um, she was looking after him. She took him through it, and she was the one who had to look after the family. And she was the one who broke through in the end, and 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 uh, did hard and won an Oscar and made it through and held the family together. And I thought that was so true of women of that period mm. in grief and in any of those situations that they had to. Uh, hold the family together and subsume their own grief. And I think that's what Keeley was really inspired by in terms of the script, that we didn't write into her grief. We let it we let it play by default. Mm. And I think that's the beauty of it. The very powerful scenes where you see her grief, you know, it, it, it's very much about her being alone with herself. And uh, so, yeah, and we started off with one variation and then I'll let Donald
0: take
3: over and explain it from there. Uh, so yes, yeah, so John was doing all this and he called me up. And I think it was it was very early in January. Probably what three years ago now?
1: And how did you two meet before that? Had you no, worked together? No, no,
3: I just got a call and this strange chap called John Hay. <laughs> yeah, I, love I was On the phone, yeah. Um, and and he was asking me to line produce the movie because I'm a. I say he
4: was a bit of a grumpy Irishman, but he was very good at his
3: job. Yeah, and I, not <laughs> not not long after that, I did ask John how did he get my number, and he couldn't remember it. In-
1: <laughs> so it was the yellow pages, I think. Yeah, yeah probably.
3: <laughs> and uh, he offered, or actually, he was asking the availability as to whether I was available to be the line producer on the movie and it already, uh, and it already had uh, producers
1: yes and because you, cause so our audience know Donald also line producer as well as execs but he also uh, line producer as well as producers just so I am knows.
3: I would like to describe myself as a hyphenate producer so but you're a triple uh, threat line, line producer co-producer exec producer and was always swearing blind I would never produce right <laughs> and and if i could give one piece of advice on this podcast for the professions out there listening Please. i would give the of advice never produce if you can do anything other than that you know the hyphen it the hyphenate of producers are the ones who make money and the producer is the sucker left holding the baby and not making any money so anyway john asked me to lamp juice and i said yes
1: and you thought well because i'll get paid this way
3: yes, no, okay. exactly yeah. you, get, you get paid weekly I read the script, and it was a really good script. Uh, mostly, I'm a cynical line producer that sort of doesn't say that. Mostly, I'll read the script and go, yeah, it's, it's okay. Fall asleep in the middle of it. Pick it up the next day. <laughs> read the next 20 pages. You know, but with this one, I read it. I went, oh, actually, this is really good. Going back, what I said earlier about, you know, it's a really easy movie to make. Yeah, it's really easy. So, as a line producer, actually, it's not that interesting of a movie to line produce. It's really a couple of people sitting there, but... I've I've got two kids who are actually one of the, my daughter my daughter is about the same age as Olivia was. And I had residents and whatever. So anyway, I start on this film it becomes apparent as we get into it that the finance plan isn't really holding up as much water as it should do. And the Goldcrest who were producing it were funding uh, the development of it at that stage and and uneffectively early production as we're moving towards closing and we're spending quite a lot of money and we're we're hiring crew and we're building sets and we d- spend a lot of money on gardening
1: right because it's got to look nice yeah of course
3: yeah we had our big house and we needed to fill in a swimming pool and all sorts of stuff and um, but as we get closer and closer it becomes more apparent that it we're going to struggle to close it uh, which point in time our leading lady at the time and it was publicly announced uh, so it's, it's no one who was Rebecca Ferguson she who I never met was saying that she wasn't able to be available um and we didn't really know why and then it became apparent that she was pregnant so she pulled out of the project and at that point the project essentially wound up I went away on my we- merry way to line produce the next project which also collapsed and the following project which also collapsed um, because that's what happens when you're a producer, because producers, the projects always collapse. Whereas the line producer, you get paid weekly. Never, never produce a movie. Or <laughs> the producers Lucy Nugget. Oh shit. Turning it off. Right. That's it. Move on. <laughs> and then John called me back and I, and I had done five movies in a row, all of which, had, which had collapsed in latter prep. And John said, would you like to produce the movie? Because the the other producers left and Goldcrest was still involved, but were only involved now in selling it and weren't uh, inclined to. To be fair to Goldcrest, they did pay all their bills. So even though they were looking at a collapsing movie, they'd paid all their bills and everybody paid and everybody would walk away. And to that, they deserve admiration and respect. I came on board producing because I am a cynical line producer principally. I was delighted that John had developed a really good script. We had, just at that stage as I came aboard, we had approached Keely and Hugh had stuck with it. And Hugh was great and incredibly supportive, constantly beating up John with script notes. And therefore between Hugh and John and Dave Logan, there really wasn't, I, nobody cares about my opinion on the script at that stage, quite frankly. You're just the producer. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm the producer. I agree to produce this. What the hell? If you have your own way of giving script notes,
3: <laughs> which usually, begin are you sure you want to do this? <laughs>
1: yeah. I've said this to you before. Please don't. Yeah.
3: There are one or two little points, which opinions that I had, which always got completely ignored and rebuffed. By pretty much everybody, but particularly John Hay, and I just keep saying them because, <laughs> because unlike pretty much anybody else, my my opinions are reasonably fixed. What
4: Donald's brilliant at is he
3: knows, he knows you know what our
4: strike price is, what what we can actually make the film for, yeah. and not just in terms of what we make the film for, what we can make the film for, and make it look good, mm-hmm. and what when we excel, you know, when we go over that line. We end up, and it's so—it's so classic with directors. They—they're too ambitious, and they end up trying to make something they can't really afford. So they end up doing it, doing something badly, not by default, but because they actually haven't got the money there. And Donald's actually fabulous at saying, "Look, you know, just keeps on like a scratch record. You know, you can't afford to do the visual effects at this. Do you know what they're going to look like if we have to do them at this? Mm. You know, so." For example, we had loads and loads of visual effects in the in the original draft. It was much more magical, realist, you know, with boy and with like, you know, chocolate mm-hmm. fountains and all yeah. that. And Donald just like said, you can't afford to do this. He kept on saying, you can't afford to do this. And he made me go for endless meetings with visual effects guys. Would then put in? Not as many meetings as I went with John. <laughs> <laughs> with huge, greater tenders that would make me go. Oh, I Oh, don't worry, they'll come down. He said, "Yes, they'll come down, but what they'll produce for you, you will we not be pleased with. Mm-hmm. You will not be proud of, and we won't make a good film. That you have to change. You know, you have to change your mindset. The
3: the the other way you could phrase that question is. You can always say you can have anything you want. You just can't have everything you want. And um, I went. I did a meeting for a job that I didn't get. And the gist of the meeting, the producer, one of the many producers, said, "You know what? We've we've you read the script, and it's a five hundred million dollar script, and we've only got four hundred million dollars. So how are we ever going to make this?" And the the reality is there is always more good ideas about how to spend money than there is good money uh, than there is money to spend regardless of what budget it is if there aren't more than more good ideas than the money available then you should fire whoever that is and hire somebody with more ideas
4: the difference between the classic you know description difference between a um a big budget film and a small budget film is that you know you know you know it's the same you know it
1: you know, you're still in jail, but it's a different prison. So Goldcrest now had pulled out their sort of saying we might invest in this, but we're still happy to come on sales. So how did you find that bit of money you needed to, you know, that you're paying for these ponds and ponds, swimming pools, I should say, sorry, ponds, and then the VFX that you do need? Where did you find, how did you manage to piece it together in the end? Well,
3: it was a, a line who are the, uh, a, the, the they were a company, well, there's a company called U Media, which I'm sure people are aware of, and Align are essentially the the financial spin off of that. So, Align were our key investor. Uh, and that was based on Goldcrest had done sales back even before I'd, I I was around. And, th- and there were reasonable sales numbers to suggest what the film was going to be worth and sell for. And on the back of that, Align came in. But as, as is so typical you take the 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 one plus one is always equal to less money than you actually need um I, i'd worked with lip sync a lot in, in various things that we did a lip sync post deal and and we had a little bit of a music deal with universal as well and between that you add add it all up and take away the number you first thought off and and divide by two and, yeah. and um <laughs> through hooker by crook you try and get it across the line and you know because of the the listeners on this podcast the way it works is a lot by promising and a lot by pushing all parties together on the anticipation that when we reach closing all the money will be there but let's just keep keep taking baby steps and what happened was we got to a point where everybody was prepared to hold hands and start dancing no no you 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 know you you first of all have to say Yes, we're prepared to play together nicely. The money comes about eight weeks later when you close financing, and of course, by the time that came round, we had lost another hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds through currency losses. Money was coming in in either dollars or euro, and we were spending it in sterling and sterling. And all throughout it, you know, the the Brexit negotiations were going on. So you didn't know? Yeah, up or down. Sterling through the, the closing period was just tanking and it was getting worse and worse and worse. So that was better for us because we are financing euro and dollar and sterling's falling through the floor. Happy days. So just as it hit its lowest peak, we got everybody to agree. And then we go into contractual processes for the eight weeks between agreeing and the money arriving. And of course, sterling improved and we lose a hundred and something thousand.
1: Isn't it crazy? So what did you do? Did you just have to try and rework the budget, shuffle things around a little bit to get around that? Yeah, wages. So yeah, your wages. Great. Well, it's good that you were getting that much in the first place. <laughs> to be fair, John, I think our, I think our wages had already gone. At already that gone. That was gone, long gone.
3: <laughs> we were being bonded by film finances. And bear in mind, this is like we're now in full-scale pre-production. We're spending £10,000, £20,000 a week. We're signing contracts... You're now in a lot of, you're now in that world where if it collapses, you're in a world of pain. You're in the world of, if it collapses, then then John and I are personally liable for a lot of cash. So... And you can't stop because remember what I said earlier about Christmas is there and it's stopping mm-hmm. us. So, yes, a, you can't push. In an ideal situation, you would close your finance and then you would start to spend the money, but you can't do that. What you've got to do is you've got to start spending the money and on the promise that you're going to close finance. And there were, and I, I'll say it now because there were a lot of people in that period uh, Richard Bullock, our production designer, um, Lawrence, our lawyer, who were working away hard. But I kept calling up and going, if we don't close finance, I don't have the money to pay for you. So they were doing it on knowing that if it collapsed, then they likely weren't going to get paid for the work they were doing. Well, how great with them? Uh, to which we owe them a great you know, gratitude. And I was, as someone who has done a lot of movies where you come on board and the producer with good intent says... I'll pay you, but I don't have the money right now. As a producer, you know, on this, you had to. Um, I had to know that. Yeah, there was if 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 there was a risk that someone wasn't going to get paid, I I wasn't going to ask them to work. And if I was going to ask them to work, I was going to only on the strict understanding they knew if it collapsed, they weren't going to get paid, and they they all agreed to do that. And I think you have to be upfront. My
4: first film was uh, produced by a guy called Gary Kurtz, who went on and produced Star Wars. Well, yeah, yeah. Star Wars and Empire Strikes yeah, Back. Yeah. I remember going on, a, you know, like we were going around trying to, doing exactly as Donald was and trying to put the finance together. And I remember I went into one meeting and he said, I heard him say, oh, you know, and we've got so-and-so in and, you know, and then we've got this and we got that. And they went, oh, great, well, maybe we'll come in. And I walked out of the meeting with him and I said, oh, sorry, Gary, I thought that we'd just heard that so-and-so weren't in. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, don't, you don't understand what we're doing. We're creating the bubble of belief. And he said, <laughs> "And that oh, that's is belief. what we're doing. We're creating the yeah. bubble of belief. And once those other, once they think that somebody else is, we'll, we'll replace them with somebody else, or we'll, or yeah. they'll, we'll go back. And that is the truth of it. Film finance is so much about a bubble of belief. Is that yeah. is what Gary told me? It is in essence that you're creating a belief that the film's going. That you, you know you've started off." And you can't explain that to somebody who works in
1: TV. No, it's a very different thing, isn't it? Yeah, money's coming from ITV or from Netflix or whatever. Yeah, it's very different, very different. Let's talk about the filming of it then for you, John, in terms of, again, just diving in um, with, you know, amazing actors as they were and just sort of, uh, do you like to shot list? Do you come fully prepared and then throw it out the window? Talk us through your process.
3: John, in advance of the script, Said, yes, everything will be shot listed. We'll know exactly what I do. And he presented to me really early on a detailed shot list detailing every scene and every shot that was going to be in it. John, over to you. How, how well did you stick to that list?
4: <laughs> through threw that out the window. But, it, but I did, I mean, this is, Donald always tells this story. And it is, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, okay. So I shot list everything yeah. in extreme detail for a reason. It's because I always know I've got something to fall back on. But when you're there and you're what I love to do is to see, you know, it's that synergy when you stick a couple of actors in a real location with a kid or something and something amazing happens and the shot list goes out the window, not because it's wrong, but it's sort of like there's something better there when you're standing there and you're looking at it through, you know, through a viewfinder and you go, oh, my God, I'm in the wrong place. I've got the camera in the wrong place. Mm. I always thought the film would be far more from the child's point of view and actually I turned it around halfway through and I made it all from the adult point of view. You won't find any of those shots where you're looking up at adults because it's the father and the uh, mother's story. It becomes, you know, it's them looking down on their performance. Now that is something I did, uh, you know, the the much maligned shot list that Donald is referencing.
0: That <laughs>
4: <Yeah. laughs> uh, was sort of very much, I was thinking, Oh, I'll take everyone into a kid's world. Like I normally do. Mm. It's like a memory. I uh, yeah, I always refer to the film as a memory that it's, it's like a, a memory and it's messy and it's blurred and there are things that could be true and things that aren't true, but it's very much their memories of the events and you know and it is that sort of postmodern, you know, slightly
1: unreliable narrator feels. Mm. Well, that comes across. I'm so glad you said that memory because that comes across in the film of what's real, what's not, who said, what was he drunk then? When, you know what I mean? All these type of things that just really just play into your mind. And-
4: when you write a script, you go, exterior, you know, the gypsy house, and then you cut inside to mm-hmm. set up that it's night, you know, but actually what Colin did brilliantly was I told him that I want to make it almost dreamlike at times.
1: Gaudi, your editor. Dreamlike
4: intensity. And what he did was he would go, fuck that. We won't do any of the exteriors. We'll just cut all that out. We'll just move from daylight to, I said, you can't, you know, she's lying there and it's night and then suddenly it's daylight. And I said, no, that's it. You just, you know, that's what he's doing. He's picking out the important moments that he Mm. remembers. And it doesn't matter. We just throw away all the notions of nice, you know, TV notions. Oh, we have to have a picture of the sunset. Yes. The new day. And I think that gives it that sort of like, it becomes all about the story and you're thrown into it in a very intense personal way. Mm. And I think Colin was brilliant about that. So we added that extra layer to it in the cut and, you know, sort of like made it more and more intense and more and more about a memory. And then we finally put the voiceover on because we, uh, well, you know, only in the, that was never in the script. We My. put it into the edit and we thought, okay well, you know, we'll establish it, and then we'll just sort of like say, so you sort of know that it's from a different time, but you're not really, we don't make a big thing of it, but you sort of like know he's telling a story. Mm. And then you're always, it's evoking the idea of memory. And memory does have that jarring effect. I thought, you know, when I originally had the idea of like, you know, doing Olivia's death, you know, the TV version, the TV movie version is that, you know, the parents are sitting around holding her hand. I thought, you know, the way to do it is just to have, him asleep and not see it at all. Just, you know, he wakes up and like, God, he's thrown in there. And then, then you cut to the phone call. It's that dissected, oh God, you know, And you, we all do it in grief. We remember moments, you know, I mean, you know, when my mum died, I, you know, I rem- all I can remember about the burial is the fact that her coffin wouldn't lie straight on, in the grave. It was sort of, you know, broken. But those crazy moments, that you don't remember, like, everyone standing around the grave, but you remember some strange incident like that. Yes. And that was really... And obviously the whole film is around the five stages of grief, as I'm sure you know. Stunning
1: performances with that as well. And did you did you
4: guide that? Well, I'll tell you what. The thing is, Joe. sometimes you give people the big picture and sometimes you don't, and that's mm. a director's choice. And I yeah. think it's a very, very important choice as to whether you do. And that's partly about the way I'm looking at how people are... Like, Keely, I sort of feel that she wanted to just be about, you know, she wanted to be about Pat. She wanted it to be about her relationship to role. She didn't want the big picture. Whereas I sort of gave Hugh more of the big picture. I never give the kids the big picture. I just work with them on individually.
1: Day by day. Some
4: actors, sense. like even, you know, somebody small, you know, sort of like who's got a much smaller part, um i did give the big picture to, to because i thought it's actually quite useful because they're only there for a day mm. and if i explain the big picture to them then they'll be able to see how their performance locks
1: into it it's true you've just got to, like you said before, earlier as well you've just got to adapt to how that performer works and make sure you get that really quickly and go okay that's how i need to work with them and whether that's talking to them or whether it's leaving them the hell alone and it
4: actually doesn't help them and i in the past, I've made mistakes of thinking, you know, I think when you're young, you think, oh, I'll be really cool and I'll explain all my big ideas. know, yes, after yeah. a while, you don't need to, you know, yeah. it's, uh, you just realise that, you know, we're all working in it as a team together. It's the last great collective art form and, and just allow them, you know, allow, you know, sort of like work work as a team and think how best to, Best to help them. Really.
1: There is so much buzz for the movie at the moment. You know, everyone, you know, the, all the press is happening. The, you know, all the stars are doing all the shows. Just how does that must feel great, right? That, to get the reaction, to get the buzz. We must be getting calls all the time at the moment about it.
4: Yeah, it does. I mean, the only thing I'll say is that, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, um, yeah, we are getting a lot of press. You never know which way it's going to go. That's the thing, isn't it? I always dread coming. I mean, I always sort of like a reach for nexium tablets or something when a film comes out because you never know which way it's going to go but i think a lot of people will connect with the movie i really do i think it's sort of like particularly pertinent to these times as donald keeps saying with the measles vaccine and it does seem to be you know we do people are seeing it very much through the lens of today you know even though it's a period film and i think that's really important
3: but i think what's what's interesting about the marketing of it though is that you know we're all in, in lockdown and haven't got out so. I've not seen any movie posters up on billboards because I haven't been walking past billboards, and there's no nothing in the tube, and you know, uh, and uh, I think that John assures me that social media is abuzz with it, but. Well, I don't follow social media, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, the adverts are all over all over Sky at the moment
1: as well. There before so many programs, I think. I think it's Sky. You
3: know, Sky's done a good job releasing it. To be fair, Hugh Bonneville has been jumping around on all sorts of radio and press and publicity things, putting it out on
4: the Premiership and things like that. I think it's going to find a a very different audience to to it that that it would in sort of like you know in our house cinemas, which is. Where it would normally sort of turn up so I'm really interested in that you know I mean these are changing times and I think you know just looking at you know some of the reviews and how it's sort of really clicking with some of the red tops and mm. things which mm. I wouldn't necessarily find for a movie like this you'd think oh you know they're just going to sort of shy away from it but somehow it is working at a sort of in a slightly different just a slightly different um sphere than I.
3: But I think that's the thing with all movies, John, You, you make them and you have a perception of them because you've lived with them for years and then they get released and what's picked up on is usually completely different sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but almost always something you didn't expect.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a Rotten Tomatoes world, really, isn't it? Yes. We we all just click and go, oh, okay, it's 73. Oh, that's okay, I'll watch it, you know, Mm. something like that. Oh, my God, Wonder Woman's gone down to 42.
1: It is fascinating, and I think finding that balance, you know, where you were talking there about getting, you know, a doing press at the moment, how important is it to make sure that something like that's in a contract at the beginning, you know, that. I, otherwise you know if they don't like the movie or there's a there's a problem but how important it is to to make sure that things like that are you know in actors contracts
3: contractually i think you are um you're you, you never have like you can put it in but but it's always down to if available and if they actually want to do it so i think that it's much more about keeping a good relationship with your cast um and and hopefully they'll be encouraged to 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 get involved. But at the same stage, you've got to realize that, you know, uh, the, the cast might be shooting for four or five days, but the press might take four or five days as well. So yes, your yeah. press commitment for a cast member can easily be as much as actually filming the movie. And some cast like doing press and are the darlings of chat shows, and other cast just don't really like doing it at all the reverse of that of course is as a producer and director do you cast because of their publicity potential you you kind of pay an actor as much for their publicity and promotion potential as you do for their acting potential or indeed how many days of acting they do because they can do easily as much publicity uh an effort into that so um But, but yeah, it's an interesting thing. Mm. I mean, I think Hugh Bonneville has just been extraordinary in terms of, like, he's so
4: articulate across such a range of the issues, you know, from the vaccine to the sort of, like, from the measles vaccine and the impact of that on the story, Mm. you know, from the script, the development of the film, and also his performance. He's so big picture about it. And it's very rare you get an actor of that quality who is so big picture. Generally, people will go you know i'm going to just talk about my performance but um i think sorry i just got to decline a thing but i think you know they'll talk very much about their performance you don't get that sort of big picture actors very often and when you do it's just so um you know exhilarating to be able to know that they're just like you know going to work at all all sorts of different levels for the movie
0: mm.
1: well let's talk about your two olivia cast a little bit more then did it make a difference you know Hugh Bonneville, Keeley Hawes to the financing of the movie because, again, your cast is incredible and they are actually fantastic in the movie and I feel perfectly cast and really wonderful to watch their journeys, you know, the whole thing going over to America and the the work with Paul Newman, you know, in terms of Sam Hewen's performance there. But I suppose let's talk about the financing of a movie like this and the dependency on cast. Does that make a difference with a movie like this?
4: We originally sort of like had always had Hugh Bonneville on it. Yeah. I originally had Rebecca Ferguson to play um yes. uh, sort of Keeley's part. Now uh Rebecca had to go off and do June, I believe. And so she wasn't she available. She got pregnant.
1: She got pregnant, yes. Yeah, she
4: got pregnant as well. So I think we chatted about so yes. You know, sort of like that moved on. But we'd already done the pre-sale. So we always had about, I don't know, about 1.3 million, something like that done on pre-sales. Based on Rebecca Ferguson, so we had to actually go to the sales agent. I had to convince the sales agent that, you know, sort of like I, you know, I said keely would be absolutely fantastic. You know, sort of like did my whole creative pitch. But then in the numbers game, you know, they, you know, Rebecca Ferguson is a movie star who's very, very, very well known in a number of territories, mm. whereas Keeley isn't so much. But the bodyguard had just lifted her at that point in the states. Right. So the people at the pre-sales we'd are obviously predicated on a particular cast. Now if somebody of that cast drops out, then you do you can they can, you know, sort of like quite legitimately worm out of the pre-sale, which means that you're, you know, flat on your face again and the film can go down. So um, but luckily though all all the pre-sales stuck with Keely and, and 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 accepted that we had a that you know she fulfilled our creative vision, shall we say, you know, for the future. Mm.
1: Yeah, which is great. And for you, Adonal, the same thing. You're you're trying to piece all this together uh and obviously going to your financiers and saying look here's the cast does it does it change obviously john you're going well i want this person for you know visually for directing i know they're smashed apart i know they'll be amazing in this but if you don't know you've got to again convince the the investors do you do it differently
3: Hugh was on board uh when i joined and to be honest with you, I think that whilst the, those conversations that John describes uh, uh, regarding Keely were, were critical, but uh, we were very much of the opinion. And I think that when Rebecca left the production, there was a, a lot of talk about who can we get to replace her, and uh, we didn't uh, come up with anything better than Keely. Um, so in that regard... Um, you know, I think that we were we were in agreement. Um, the other aspect, like, I think that in terms of what the financiers look for and how to how to market it, th- there was an IP, which was that Roald Dahl and Patricia Neal were well-known people. So in that aspect, that went a little way to, you know, to, to garner a marketing hook, as it were. Uh, and obviously we had the script, which everybody loved. um, um uh, so, you know, and then later on when we were doing the secondary characters, um, we were kind of financed at that stage and it was just a bonus to get to get um, Sam and Conleth and, and Jeffrey. It's
4: not really a sort of like straight producer-director split. I mean, obviously, you know, a creative team like ourselves, you know, and when Donald's a creative producer, you know, we're on the phone like probably most of the day chatting about it. So you're always yes. going... Oh, Sam would be great. Oh, he looks like he. Oh no, what about so-and-so? so and so? So it's not really. You can't even actually put your finger and say who finally, you know, sort of like made that final decision, or you know, Donald will go. Oh, well, you know, Jeffrey. Why don't we go after? He'd be perfect. You know, it's that sort of thing. Or I go. You know, I don't know. I can't. I cannot remember how those decisions were made. Um, but it was nice bonus that uh,
3: um, Sam, uh, Donald and Sam had worked together before. Yeah. Well, it was a, a little bit of a funny story about Sam. So. The, the part of Paul Newman was easily the most discussed part and we couldn't figure out who on earth could play Paul
1: uh, well, it's a, it was a tough one because also they're not they're not in the film for a massive amount of time but what a pivotal you know role yeah, and...
3: pivotal but like actually the, the, there's an element here whereby there was a kudos to going to an actor and saying would you like to play Paul Newman indeed and and that actually meant that I was perfectly happy to go to the biggest Hollywood star and go, do you fancy doing it? Because it's only a a couple of days. Um, And we were never gonna offer anything like the money that they would normally expect, but that didn't matter because I knew it was a good part and I knew it was short and I knew there was a kudos to to playing Paul Newman. And hey, you don't get if you don't ask. Uh, As John said, I had worked with Sam on a movie called SAS Red Notice. And on that movie, uh, the first assistant director, who I also hired, was David Crabtree. And David had read the two Olivia script. And David said to me, hey, you know, Sam would make a really good Paul Newman. I, of course, being arrogant and not paying much attention, completely dismissed David's suggestion and kind of went, (laughs) no, don't be silly. I decided to go through IMDb. And I go through all the photographs on IMDb, starting at number one, all the way down. Wow and come across this chap who looks quite like Paul Newman. And then I call up John and go, what about Sam Hugh?" And Sam goes, yeah, well, Suzanne works with Sam Heughan because she casts Outliner. I went, oh, right. I mean, I wrote,
4: I wrote Sam a long letter telling him why yeah. I think he'd be a brilliant uh, yeah. Paul and, Newman, and, and uh, he immediately
3: I mean, interrogated my casting director to find out what John Hay was like. To be fair, he didn't get on the phone. The first we heard from Sam was an email saying, hey, guys, read your script, love it, I'm, I'm on board. Amazing, wow.
1: Uh, it's because it's like you talk there, John, about um having to write actors' letters, and it's this thing we have to do. And it's, oh, it's I always, always
4: do, you know. I always, <laughs> yeah, do. me too. I was, I was always taught to, I was always taught to, uh, yeah. Were you? Uh, I okay, to. I mean, um, Gary Kurtz said, you know, look, you have to make this personal, you have to, sh- you know, your passion has to come through, otherwise, nobody's going to engage. It's your passion that drives us, and I think mm. that's so true. And I think he, yeah, as I said, I think I mentioned, he was a bit of a mentor to me on my first film. Yes, yes. Write Every, everyone a letter, you know, all your leads and sort of like write down, always put very politely, thank them, send them a card after they've done their performance and, you know, and I know those old school ways are going, but I do keep them up really and, you know, say thank you very much and always try and make an effort because I think it just makes so much difference. Even if the film doesn't click with people, mm. those relationships and the way you're perceived in the industry mean that you know that it's a, it's a village, isn't it, the British film industry, and yeah. everyone's talking. So you know that it's just so easy. You know, somebody like Jason Fleming will bring me up bizarrely and go, you've got to use this continuity woman. She's fantastic.
1: I love you
4: know? that. Yeah. And so you just think, oh, what actors are getting involved <laughs> nice in doing? And obviously you do see them because, you know, you think mm. from an actor's perspective, continuity is really important. So it's not just, you know, these... Mm. Things thing. So yeah, it's just sort of like always those closing those circles,
1: isn't it? It really is. And that I think it's really important those relationships in this business. Uh it doesn't matter how big you get, how far up you get, those relationships you start at the beginning, people are always passing you, and that's vitally important to keep keep those.
3: The way the industry works it's kinda doesn't help us uh to an extent because there are barriers to being able to get to talk to the cast and typically you'll make an offer to a cast member and if you or the director doesn't know them you're not going to speak to that cast member until the offer's in and the money's agreed and and the agent has released the telephone number and sometimes you have to make an offer subject to meeting but an actor will refuse that A bigger actor But you you won't be able to audition very often and, and, you know, as a producer or director making an offer to an actor that maybe you haven't worked with, you are taking a leap of faith based on what you know of them. Nice. Let's talk about,
1: um, because we talked about the finance a little bit there, Donald, and it'd be really nice to know how people close finance because often people can find investors or they can piece bits together, but any small bit of advice for actually closing that finance over the, the stuff that you have fallen down on and have done well on. Put it this way.
3: You'll never get a hundred percent finance and you never get to a state where you've got a hundred percent finance. What you, what you kind of, you have to make a, a kind of a run at it and, and just tell everybody, yeah, we're, we're there. We're complete. We're done. And but that will be based on the most optimistic understanding of how much money everybody's going to put in and how little money they're all going to get charged. And then as you go into that, suddenly someone will go, oh, yes, but my legal fees are another 20000 And and we want the, uh, uh, an uplift on this of that much money. And then somebody else will object and blah, blah, blah. And, and they'll object about the, where they are in the waterfall and all that stuff. So there is an element where it is juggling cats and you just have to keep the momentum going. And the lawyers who all charge by the R, or at least want you know want to be billed, paid by the R, rather than on the on the completion of the movie, will be very reluctant to enter into the closing process until they're convinced that yes, it's going. So, um, and the bit I, I said previously about you know Christmas being that backstop, the which you can't go and you sort of need a, a stop to stop the moving sliding any further. Well, it's it's really to persuade the lawyers and the financiers that oh, we have to get on this train because it's leaving the station. And, and that certainly, like on I remember on to Olivia, we had all our parties in place in July, but it wasn't really until September that the lawyers kind of got right, okay, yeah, we better start circulating documents and start trying to close things. And a, part, a lot of that, by the way, was, you know, the, the, those dates are important because everybody goes on holiday in August and all the lawyers go on holiday in August and, and then you can't, you know, so we kind of got into, there was a bit of a hiccup, I remember, in, in early July and the kind of, the ripples of that kept on discussing for a few weeks and then everybody sort of went, well, it's nearly August and let's not get into closing. So, and that, of course, meant we started closing the legal, typically closing takes, they always say sixty eight weeks. Um, and, um, I was intimately involved in the process, but why it took it to six weeks, I don't know, but it does. There we go. Um, and in that time we're living on fumes financially because nobody's actually put any money into bank account. Uh, so, and because Christmas is coming and we're trying to get into pre-production you are spending money and it's your own money and, and it's at this stage that this is classically where producers lose their houses uh, you know you as a producer you're financially reasonably safe when you close finance because you're playing with other people's money up until before closing you're you're not and it's your own money and then that's that's a bit Amazing. Thank you. That was
1: really useful. And, and I think our listeners would love that. Um, John, this is your, to Olivia's, your first release for, for a little while. Um, it'd be really nice to just talk, you know, quickly about that. Piece. I mean, I'm a writer
4: director. I did an adaptation of Corum Boy for the BBC, which never got, which never got off the ground and sort of like got quite far along the road. That took it you know a couple of years the years just sort of drift by this one took three years two years three years to finance and write so Mm. you know the last I don't you know what you see on the IMDB is 2011 or something but Mm. you know it's probably by the time you've done all the rounds with a last thing it's 2013 you come out of the Emmys and then you think oh I can't screw up and do something really bad so I've got to choose the next thing properly and Mm. then you know it's it's those sort of things, and then I've obviously I've been working on Pugwash in between, mm,
0: yeah, exciting. writing
4: that, and that's been a, probably a couple of years, sort of like working on that. And obviously, I've got a company called Atticus, and we do a whole range of television. So I don't just direct; I executive produce as well on things. So yeah, I'm always busy. Don't worry; I always get up at about eight in the morning and carry on till Hello. six at night. So I haven't been haven't been lying on my back for the last few years. It's 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 sort of like just feels like every day is the same really. And then obviously. You know, I mean, that, that's just how it goes. And I think that's so, mm-hmm. I think if you're a director who chooses and, you know, make just considers the, you know, the next film you make very carefully, very often you get huge gaps for people just because, yep. you know, something comes along, it doesn't work out, this changes, that changes. Mm-hmm. And I think it is important. And I think people, do, you know, people don't mind gaps on your CV if they can see that you've chosen well on the next one. What mm-hmm. I think if you suddenly go, oh, I'll, drift off and do 10 episodes of the bill or something and then come back mm. and do a feature they get all nervous so i think in a way it's better not to have worked and done you know something uh, you know and then end up doing some you know going for something good to something good than doing they, they cancelled
3: the bill years ago
4: i
1: know i was going to say the bill was kind yeah. of like it's got a, you'll never <laughs> yeah, get trouble right, well, whatever you whatever people do
4: these days <laughs> but you know i haven't i haven't exact i haven't been in directors prison for years no exactly so
1: there is that and and, and donald for you then look does that make a difference when picking projects, if the director's worked on something in a while or not? Does that make any difference to you
3: at all? It's Look, it's something to take on board. I, I think that if a director, either a first-time director or a director who hasn't worked for a long time, it's nice if a director will come to you and go, uh, this is the DPA I want, this is the production I want. this is the blob I want. I would never want to give a director every crew member because you, you end up making the same film that you did the last time, but, but with, but it costs more money. But I do like the idea that it, the, you know, I think it's always good the director has their, colleagues and friends that they've worked with numerous times before that they can bring to it
1: absolutely this has been honestly amazing to olivia is fantastic Uh, i can't wait for everyone to see this i can't wait for you guys to get this released on well when this comes out it'll be out which is super exciting it's on sky go watch it please go support this amazing film and it it is indeed, and it's wonderful, uh, Donald McCusker, Thank you for your time. I know you're not on social media, so no one can find you. Uh, John, he is, hey, he is thank- actually. Oh, he is. Wait, he's is- in there. Under I know, sort of
4: like nothing but you can
1: never find him he just he just stalks really so yeah oh, oh I see so you are alright this is the task if people try and find him on social media then that is your task I, I, um, if they do find me can somebody let me know because I don't know where I am so. <laughs> you have no idea well, someone's running it for you by the sounds of it but John you are on social media where can people uh, tell you how much they love the film
4: it's that John Hay a,
1: you know that, that John, John Hay. Hay okay yeah Um, you can follow me at Charles Olsen and, and you can follow the podcast at Filmmakers Pod on Twitter or the Filmmakers FilmmakersPodcast uh, uh, on Instagram, where we're very popular at the moment, which is lovely. Um, remember, you can go out there and make your film. You can make it happen, just as John and Donal have done. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. We will see you next Tuesday, as always. Oh, we have we have Matthew Modine on next week. Uh, the fantastic actor. Oh well, there you go. Well, let's put us in our place, John. For metal jacket. Uh, until then, Donal and John, thank you so much for your time. Hello, thank you.
4: thank you. Thank you very much
1: cheers take care everyone go make your movies make it happen be inspired see you next week bye